This time the young children can meet their teachers in the back, their lovely, lovely teacher. I can say that because it's my wife this week. Just want to clarify that. They'll rejoin us at the end of the service. Uh, Older kids, uh, there are red folders on the stand in the back with fill-in-the-blank kind of sermon notes to help you track with what's going on. You can feel free to grab one of those and fill it out. Everybody, let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. For those that have not been with us during the past two and a half years, we've been going through Matthew for quite some time, and you are here for the penultimate, the sermon before last. Uh, We will finish Matthew's gospel next week, and so we are fittingly at the account of the resurrection. And so I'll be reading this morning from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you've ever received, and I'm assuming you have, at some point you've received an invitation to a party or an event and it had the, the, the request RSVP, which I'm not even going to try to do the, the French that that stands for, but what it means is please respond, please let us know if you plan to attend, you know, we're trying to get a head count and, and we'd just like to know if you're going to be there or if you're not going to be there. You can ignore that. It'd be kind of rude, but it doesn't really change your life if you ignore an RSVP, does it? It doesn't. But there's another kind of invitation you might get, and I wonder if you've ever received a court summons. I'm not asking for a show of hands. But if you've been summoned either for some transgression of your own or to serve as a witness, you have to respond to that. You can't just toss that in the basket with the other male and ignore it and never reply. There's consequences for ignoring a summons like that. You might get in trouble. You might go to jail. You don't have the option of forgetting it and moving on with your life. It's a lot like what we're faced with the resurrection of Jesus. Many of us uh, have heard this story. Many around the world have heard the story and in our minds categorize it much like an RSVP. Well, that's nice, but I don't have to do anything. When in reality, 
The message of the resurrection is more like a summons that demands a response, and ignoring it is itself a response that entails consequences. And Matthew, in his gospel, shows us some of the different responses that people have to the resurrection. Now, it's interesting, this isn't a story about the resurrection. Did you notice that? Even what Matthew describes in verses 2 and 3 is not itself the resurrection. He says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. That's not the moment of the resurrection. He goes on and tells them, look, Jesus isn't even here. He's already gone. One commentator said that the earthquake and the rolling of the stone was not to let Jesus out. It was to let the witnesses in because he had already risen and they were called to come and see. This isn't about the resurrection, it's about what happened after. Because what matters about the resurrection for us is how we respond to it. And a response is required. The resurrection is not an idea or a story that we can act on if we like, or ignore it, or put it off if we're just not feeling it. It is a summons, it is a demand. And the resurrection demands a response of obedient faith. So let's look at this passage of Scripture with that idea in mind of the response that's demanded of us and consider what becomes of the various responses that Matthew records for us. And the first response we see is the response of fear. And what Matthew shows us is that the response of fear doesn't last. It's not meant to last. We see this in verse 4. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That's their initial response, understandably, because they're witnessing something incredible, something that blows their minds. They never could have imagined. Their view of the world is being radically changed before their very eyes. They had thought that they were guarding the body of a dead criminal. That's an easy assignment. Should be an easy assignment. You know, if you're trying to guard a bank to keep someone from robbing it, that's hard. If you're trying to guard a cemetery to make sure nobody gets out of it, that should be easy. And yet, and yet, they thought any threat would come from outside the tomb facing inwards. But their charge escaped. In a moment, they see that things are not what they thought. And when your worldview is shaken like that, when the dead rise, when angels show up and speak, when the ground shakes, we respond with fear, and we should, because the foundations that we stand on are shaking. The pillars that hold up our world are crumbling, and we don't know what to believe anymore. Honestly, if at some point you don't respond with fear, to an understanding and revelation of who God is. And there's a chance you haven't understood Him rightly. And for the guards, the ground that they stood on was literally shaking. It wasn't just an earth-shaking idea. It was a literal earth-shaking moment for them because the power of God was being revealed. A power that's described often in Scripture as, as shaking all of nature. One example is in Psalm 97. Which records this way, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the peoples see His glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. That's the God that is revealed in the resurrection. Not a God of nice, happy ideas. Not a God of cross-stitch verses that bring comfort and peace and calmness to your life. Yes, He is that. But He is also the God who shakes the foundations of the world and challenges everything that you thought you already knew and believed. Everything you built your life on shakes. And when that happens, fear is appropriate. Fear is not out of place. Even the women who receive the good news from the angel, they, they experience fear. As they run away with the message for the disciples in verse 8, we see that their hearts are still racing with at least a little bit of fear. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to tell his disciples. For them, fear is mixed with joy and excitement over the unknown, but also something confusing, something uncertain. What we thought the world was, it no longer is. Joy over what they've been told, but fear over the way their world was being reshaped. The message from the angel addresses this, though, in verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. And later, as they encounter Jesus, he repeats those very words, do not be afraid, because the response of fear doesn't last. It should not last. And the reason for that is something subtle in this passage that I want you to notice. To whom does the angel say, don't be afraid? Does he say it to the guards who are almost literally scared to death? No. The angel says it to the women at the tomb, not to the guards. Why is that? Why doesn't the angel address them and tell them, don't be afraid? It's because of who these women were and the relationship they had to Jesus. You look at verse 1, it wasn't just any women. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. These aren't just any old people hanging around a graveyard looking for a dead body. These are the very women that Matthew, we talked about this last week, the significance of naming names. Matthew named their names last week saying, they witnessed his death and they came and witnessed where he was buried. These same women came to the tomb. We see in Matthew 27, 55 through 56. Matthew said, There were also many women there at the cross watching Jesus die, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. These weren't just any women. These were the followers of Jesus. And the angel said to the women in verse 5, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The reason they should not be afraid is because of the relationship they had to Jesus. The promise, the hope of the resurrection is not an end of God's justice and a promise that everything's okay and nothing bad you do matters anymore because God is good and kind and, and indulgent and forgives everything. He doesn't stop being the mighty God. He doesn't stop being the consuming fire described in both the Old and New Testament. He doesn't stop being the righteous judge. 
but for those who follow him, who seek after him, who are faithful to him, that fear doesn't last because it's chased out by something else. In 1 John 4, 18, the apostle writes, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This is not about how God's love removes all the fears from your life, the fear of spiders, the fear of the dark, the fear of lightning, the fear of the stock report. No, that's not what this is saying, that if, you, if God loves you, you will never feel fear again. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is our fear of God in the sense of fearing His punishment, fearing what He will do to us, fearing His judgment upon us, our sense of being wrong before Him, and fearing what that will be, what will happen. That's chased away. It's pushed away by the love of God. A love that's only possible if the sin and the rebellion that God would rightly punish is instead dealt with on the cross. As Jesus takes the place of sinners, the punishment that we would fear is on Him. And now that love that He has for us casts out the fear of punishment. And so the response of fear doesn't last, at least for the child of God. The next response that we see is that the response of falsehood doesn't work. The response of falsehood doesn't work. If we follow the path of the guards for a minute, after being scared half to death, we see in verses 11 through 15 that uh, some of the guard went into the city. They told the chief priests everything that had taken place. So they went and told the chief priests, hey, look, the ground shook, the stone rolled away by itself, and an angel came and said that Jesus was alive. Okay, that's the message they took. And when they'd assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, despite what you saw and what you just told us, tell the people that his disciples came at night and stole the body while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the guards took the money and did what they were directed, and that story was spread among the Jews to this very day. Now notice you have two groups here. You have the guards, and you have the elders and chief priests, the religious leaders who had condemned Jesus to death. The guards personally witnessed the angel in the earthquake, so they know that something miraculous, something amazing is going on. They, they've seen it with their own eyes. And the chief priests hear their testimony, their firsthand account, and rather than say, wow, that's crazy. We, we need to reconsider our approach here. Maybe we were wrong condemning this man to death. Maybe we should have listened to what he said. No, instead they say, whoa, we got to cover this up because word's going to get out and we have to stop it. Now let's, let's pause and consider their plan for a moment. Not, not the foolishness of it. The foolishness of saying that, that the disciples who when Jesus was arrested, ran. One of them even running away naked because somebody grabbed his coat while he was trying to run. The disciples who completely abandoned him, one of them even denying that he ever knew him, denying the man they had followed for years. The disciples who at that very moment were hiding in fear, in secret. Yet those disciples somehow organized themselves, overpowered a Roman guard, and stole a body. And now we're willing to die saying that it was alive again. Yeah, that's, that's not the best story to go with. But let's set that aside, okay? 
And let's look at why do they need to lie? Why do they need a cover story to explain why Jesus' body is missing? Why do they want to nip this in the bud and stop the story from spreading? It's because you can't ignore it. When word gets out, this is not just something you can pretend didn't happen. You can't act like it doesn't matter because if it actually happened, there are implications, there are consequences. Reminds me of an earlier incident in Jesus' encounter with leaders who would later condemn Him to death. When they were asking Him, hey, where'd you get your authority? Who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus said, look, I'm going to ask you a question. If you answer my question, I'll answer your question. Deal? And in Mark chapter 11, He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him? And they recognize that if we acknowledge that whether it's John the baptizer or Jesus himself or the later the apostles, if we recognize that what they're doing is from God, then we are duty-bound, we're obligated to obey and to follow. So if they acknowledge that something miraculous happened with Jesus' resurrection, they've got to listen but they don't want to, to avoid having to respond in a way that they don't want to, to avoid admitting they were wrong and changing something about their lives. They have to explain it another way, which means falsehood, which means a lie. And I don't expect that any of you, maybe you are, I don't know, but I don't expect that any of you are going around spreading lies and actively believing lies about the resurrection of Jesus. But the same principle tempts us today. Because what's behind that urge to explain away the resurrection and avoid responsibility is that something else is more important to us. There's something else we value more than wanting to follow God. Maybe it's their political or their their social status. Maybe they weren't willing to give up the lifestyle that they had, their comfortable living, is there something in your life that you hold on to too dear that you won't let go of? It reminded me of um, one of my favorite movies, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, where Indiana Jones is seeking after this, this treasured item, but he's not alone. There's also bad guys who are seeking after it as well. And as the movie comes to an end, they've found it, but the ground is opening up and shaking and the temple they're in is falling down and they've got to flee and escape for their lives. And one of the bad, ambiguously bad slash good characters, Elsa, she, she is uh, hanging on for dear life as the ground opens up and she's going to fall to her death. And Indiana Jones is reaching out to take her hand and help her. And just before she can reach up her hand, she see, looks and sees that the very treasure they were trying to get is just across the way. And if she can reach out just a little bit farther, she can get it. But to do that, she can't take the hand that is reaching down to save her. If you've seen the movie, you know she goes for the treasure and ends up falling to her death. Happy Easter. Sorry. (laughs) I didn't think through how that illustration ended before I started it. But, you know, the seriousness is real. That if there's something else that is more important to us than responding to what happened at the empty tomb, if we're reaching out to something else, that's not going to work for us in the end. The only hope that we have of salvation, of peace, of happiness, of security, of everything that we're seeking in life 
is not in that other treasure we're reaching out to try to grab to. But as long as we're reaching for that, we can't take hold of what will save. The claim that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today makes a demand on your life because it means that He is Lord. He is God. And what He says is a command that must be obeyed. The impulse of sin in our hearts is to look for a way to get out of it, to escape those demands. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to come up with some explanation, some story, some falsehood to deny what really happened there. The lie can be costly. The leaders needed to pay the soldiers and probably needed to pay off Pilate as well when the story got around. The soldiers risked getting in serious trouble when their lie was exposed. Falsehoods today can be costly. Believing it's just a spiritual resurrection, that it's one truth among many, that it's an inspiring story but nothing else. But like all lies, they don't work in the end because a lie doesn't match reality. So we've seen that the response of fear doesn't last. The response of falsehood doesn't work. But lastly, we see the response of faith. And what I want us to see here is that the response of faith doesn't stand still. The response of fear is we're confronted with a power that challenges and corrects what we previously believed. Should give way to peace in the light of God's love for us. The response of falsehood as we try to avoid the cost and the implication of what the resurrection means doesn't work, which leaves us with the real response that we're called to have when confronted with the resurrection, the response of faith. Verses 6 and 7, the angel says to the women, come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. The women are called to come in and witness the empty tomb, to see for themselves that the body isn't there, but they're not called to linger there. They're not called to hang out and enjoy the ambiance of the the beautiful empty tomb and all that it means. No. The angel says, come in, take a look, now go. You've got a job to do. They're called to go quickly and carry the message. The response of faith is an active response. In the Bible, faith is never about just believing something. It's about doing something because of what you believe. If you're just tuning in, I'm going to repeat that for you because that is, that is crucial. In the Bible, faith is never just about believing something. Faith is about doing something because of what you believe. If we were to go through the, the whole chapter, and we're not, and it's not on the slides, so don't worry. The whole chapter of Hebrews 11, the famous hall of fame of faith, listing all or many of the great characters of, of Israel's history who responded in faith. What's so interesting about that to me is for each one of them, it says, by faith, Abraham, and then it's a verb. By faith, Joseph, and then it's a verb. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, Rahab did this. Faith is not just what you believe. Faith is acting on what you believe. I've often pointed out to this congregation, one of my favorite stories from the Bible, mostly for its humor, uh, is after Jesus had called his disciples to be his witnesses to the nations, and as he was ascending into heaven, we see this in Acts chapter 1, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, Jesus just told them what to do. Jesus said, go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. And then he ascends to heaven. And they stand there looking up at the sky. Until someone comes and interrupts them. And says, go! You were given something to do. Go! They're rebuked for standing and looking and thinking and reflecting when they were supposed to be acting. How appropriate a message for the tendency of our times to at times be so concentrated on our Godward focus that we forget that our vertical relationship has a horizontal component. Or as others have said, that we can be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And that's not how the gospel plays out. It's important to get this. So we see it again in in this passage in verse 9 and 10. Jesus met the women and said, greetings. And they came up to him. They took hold of his feet and they worshiped him, which is what any of us would want to do if we saw the resurrected Jesus right now. If we didn't fall on our faces in fear, we would want to rush up and just hold on to him and worship him. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Now go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. This time it's not the angel, but it's Jesus himself who interrupts their worship. They're clinging to him to remind them, you have something to do. Reminds me of my children when they were younger. Okay, they're not in here right now, I can say. They still do it today. When I'll say, go clean your room. Go brush your teeth. It's almost bedtime. Hey, go get your homework and open it up. And they know that if they find mommy or daddy and just say, but I just want to snuggle. And they'll curl up next to us and cling to us and put their head on our arm. What mom or dad is going to say, no, 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 you get away from me and go brush your teeth. They know it's hard for us to send them away when they want to be close, when they want to embrace and cling to us. But a good parent has to say, no, 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 you have something to do. Go do it. Go do it. Although as Randy's going to talk about next week as we look at the next passage, It's a little different from that illustration because he goes with us. He sends us to go and he goes with us as we go. Worship is good. Worship is necessary. It's delightful, but it's not the sum total of the Christian life. It's not all we're called to do. We're not meant to just be gathered together in one place all the time, singing and praying and learning and sharing. That's that's part of it. But we're to go. We're to go and tell. This Easter Sunday... And as we are especially focused on the resurrection, it's good for us to think about it. But it's not supposed to be an event that we just think about. We don't just think about the resurrection. We don't just feel happy about it and sing about it. It means we don't stand still. The response of faith means we move. We have to actively respond. If we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that doesn't just change what we believe about death. It changes what is most important for us to do in this life. If we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that doesn't just change what we believe about death and what happens when we die. It changes what is most important for us to do in this life. For the women who were the first witnesses, they were given a specific charge. Go, go, go and tell. Tell the disciples. That same command is still on us today. The church as a whole and Christians as individuals are given the task of witnessing to 
telling others about this event, as we'll see more next week. But the resurrection also rearranges our values, our priorities, our assumptions in too many ways for us to even touch on this morning. But let's just consider one or two or three. If death is defeated, then why do we let fear and anxiety about the future still motivate us and drive us and dictate how we spend our money and our time? If Jesus has risen from the dead, does it not confirm that this world and this life are not our final destination? And if so, then why do we live with the goal of accumulating more stuff? If not even death is able to defeat Jesus, then why would we be ashamed of Him and His words? What power, what greater power could there possibly be than the one who has defeated death? Why would we be ashamed of Him? The Scripture is written to tell us how to live in light of the resurrection. To tell us what the active response of faith is to be like. How to live out the gospel together. The danger, brothers and sisters, is that we will hear this good news. This message that demands a response of action and obedience. And we will think that merely hearing the message and perhaps agreeing with it and at least looking like we paid attention, which I thank you so much for doing this morning, we feel like that's enough. That's all that's required of me to have a faithful response is to hear, to nod. If I'm really into it, I say amen. But that's all that it takes to have faith. And the Bible warns us in James chapter 1 that if we think that way, we are self-deceived. In James chapter 1, we see be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You won't ever hear a message from this pulpit that is intended simply to affirm and to encourage you. To tell stories of Jesus that are meant to inspire you and make you feel good and walk out of this room unchanged in how you live. If I have done that, I have failed you. If you come away feeling encouraged and enlightened and inspired and like everything's good and there's nothing that God requires of you and desires you to do, then either I have failed in communicating or you've sat there doodling in the sermon notes section because that is not the preaching of the Word of God. This is why in our church and in any church that follows the Scriptures, it's not about what happens on Sunday morning and what you hear on Sunday morning. It's not just about that, but it's about how the community and the leadership of the church gather around you to reinforce the words that you hear that call you into action. As we help one another to, as we say, live out the gospel, to be who we're called to be, believe what we're called to believe, do what we're called to do. If we let you to be just a hearer and not a doer, then we are letting you be deceived. I need to mention in closing one of the most important results of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and in our confession of faith this morning, we saw these words, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, you are still in your sins. Yes, I know Jesus died for your sins, but how do we know that it worked? If I told you I was going to die for your sins, and then I went off and died... Why would you believe me? 
On what basis, what proof or assurance would you have that God accepted my sacrifice for you instead of just saying, well, he died for his own sins? But Jesus not only dies, but God raises him him up. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus, the proof that in him our sins are paid for, that God has received that sacrifice, that payment. And it's in Jesus and in no one else. The resurrection is evidence, proof of the grace of God for your salvation. And that is the message to the unbeliever. That only in Jesus can you hope to be forgiven. And the resurrection stands as proof of that. But I have a message also in closing for the believer. Because the resurrection doesn't just call you to respond in believing that your sins are forgiven, but it also calls you to respond in an active lifestyle of obedience. And the resurrection is evidence of the grace of God for that. In Ephesians chapter 1, hear these verses. That you may know, Paul prays for the believers, that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you. That you may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Did you, did you catch the stunning phrase that the same power that God used in raising Christ from the dead is at work in you. Child of God, the power of the resurrection is promised to you. It is at work in you. Following Jesus is hard. The response of fear, the response of falsehood, those are understandable given what it takes to truly obey God. Yeah, you can get the kids. Go ahead, Jeannie. (laughs) The response of fear and falsehood are understandable. But the resurrection is a promise that whatever it takes to do what God calls you to do, He's given you the power to do it. Because the same power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. And that is enough for salvation, for forgiveness, and for everything thereafter. What God calls you to do, He makes you able to do. And the resurrection is proof of that. Let us pray that God would make us not only aware of that, but teach us to live confidently because of that. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power that rose, that raised Jesus from the dead, which is at work in those who believe. May we be aware of that. May we be confident in that. May that power move us to make choices we don't believe we have the strength to make. May that power move us to give up things we didn't think we could ever give up. May that power move us to begin habits that we never thought we could start, good and godly habits. May that power move us to do bold things in your name. May that power move us to love people that we thought were unlovable. May that power move us to be Christ-like in ways that we cannot on our own strength. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have your promise that we are able to do it. We thank you for this and pray it in the name of our Savior. Amen.